Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Your computer makes thousands of connections every day, just like the one it's making now to deliver you your audio content. Why not unlock some little connections of your own? Pick up a box of Cadbury Heroes today, stay at home and share them with your family or friends. Sometimes it's the little things that bring us together. I think I know you pretty well now, Brooksy, and I have identified a new podcast that you are going to love. Okay, go on. It's called Future Makers. All right. from the University of Oxford. Okay, ticking all the boxes. Yeah, and it's academics from Oxford debating key issues for the future of society. First season, all about artificial intelligence. Do you love it? Oh, yes. Of course you love it. Yes, yes. So it's like a fly on the wall, kind of like, this is what they talk about in the senior common room. That's the idea, yeah. Oh, I like that. Which I'm genuinely intrigued by. Yeah. Um, So each episode, you have three academics just discussing a question around AI. So it could be be anything, like ethics and one of our favorites, inbuilt biases. Oh, yeah. um, Yeah. Of of algorithms. Automation of jobs, healthcare. Um, applications oh, right. of AI. And these are the people who would know exactly what's these going on. These are exactly the right people. So it's hosted by a guy called Professor Peter Millikan, who is at Hartford College, Oxford, and he's a member of the computer science and philosophy faculty. Ah, we love philosophy. Tick, tick. <laughs> um, so get subscribing. Just uh, find a Future Makers podcast today, wherever you get your podcasts. LIGO holds this amazing potential to go back to the beginning to the first moments of space and time. The Big Bang. Ladies and gentlemen, we have detected gravitational waves. We did it. And now, after two massive black holes collided nearly two billion light years from Earth, astronomers at the LIGO Observatory in Washington State have detected a fourth set of these ripples in the fabric of space-time. LIGO connected the heavens and the Earth. It is truly the start of a new era in astrophysics. Science is not about belief. Science is about understanding. So Einstein predicted it in 1916, but it took a hundred years to finally prove that, bingo, Einstein was right after all. Do we really know what we're doing when we do, in general terms, big science? Given what you've seen, would you be giving that team a Nobel Prize for physics? Hello and welcome to Science-ish. I'm Rick Edwards, joined as ever by Dr. Michael Brooks. Hello. Now, Michael is looking slightly, I'm going to paint a picture for you here, a little bit twitchy, a little bit sweaty, a little bit uneasy, I suppose. And the reason for that 
is that we are doing a very special episode of Science-ish. We are not, for once, looking at a piece of popular culture and then examining a big scientific question through it. No. Instead, we are looking at something that Michael has done. What have you done, Michael? <laughs> what have I done? What have you done? Um, what I've done is, I've got a story in New Scientist How's this it? week uh, about uh, the gravitational wave observatory called LIGO, yeah. uh, which you may remember from 2015, 2016, yeah. made a discovery of gravitational waves. Biggest science story in the last 10 years? Yeah, I mean, there was the Higgs boson, but this was, I think, bigger than the Higgs boson yeah. in a sense. You know, this was a whole new instrument. Uh, it was, you know, a hundred years after Einstein had predicted that these things should exist. Uh, How we, convenient. We finally saw them. Uh, and then sort of within 18 months, the guys had a Nobel Prize for, for this discovery. So. Yeah, an amazing Great thing. work. You're not going to tell me anything different, are you? Well, it turns out that actually there is sort of credible reason to question the claims that they're making. So, I mean, gravitational waves are these, you know, ripples that come from hugely distant objects, you know, the far-flung corners of the universe. Mm -hmm. Two black holes collide or whatever. And, you know, they send out these ripples in space-time. And the fact that we can detect them is extraordinary. And and for us to detect them, the event that's causing them has to be absolutely sort of cataclysmic. Yeah, it has to be absolutely. Huge. Yeah, yeah. Um, because the gravitational force is pretty weak. Yeah, I mean, it's incredibly weak. And and so you get to the point where the detection that was made, for instance, in 2015, involves sort of measuring a movement of space that was equivalent to a thousandth the diameter of a proton. Very small. <laughs> very small indeed. And therefore indeed. very difficult. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Which is why it's taken sort of decades and decades for these instruments to become, you know, able to do that and reliable enough to do that. People have been looking for gravitational waves for 50 years or longer. How did the LIGO machine operate? How does it operate? So what it does, it's, it's called an interferometer. Mm-hmm. And it has two arms. And you send a laser beam. Welcome to my world. <laughs> yeah. And most people's, in fact. Um, yeah. So, so you, you have, each of these arms has a big laser beam that sends, uh, I think it's like four kilometers length or something like that you're sort of back and forth but you know it's sort of a huge long instrument massive sort of long laser beam mm-hmm. and when the beams recombine if the space that they've been shooting through has moved at all then the recombination of those two laser beams won't be exact there'll be a slight shift and you'll be able to see this in something called an interference pattern so effectively with a big enough instrument you can see that a gravitational wave may have made one or other of the arms a different length yes yeah. That's, that's the point, yeah. isn't it? Yeah, and we're talking about a different length being a thousandth the diameter of a proton. That's the difference. So they created this uh, machine, or several machines, because you have to have uh, a Well, they've got just two to... initially. So the, so the LIGO collaboration has two, one in Hanford um, in uh, Washington State mm-hmm. and the Livingston detector in Louisiana. And they're far enough apart, you know, a few thousand miles apart, that it should be that they're like totally deconnected de- from each other. So, th- so there's no sort of possibility that a seismic tremor in one will coincide with a seismic tremor in the other. So, so it's a way of sort of saying, if you get two signals in the same thing at pretty much the same time, then it must be that it's a gravitational wave. Because nothing else can have caused it over that. Distance. Nothing else will shake them both in the same mm-hmm. way at the same time. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. These instruments are, they, you know, they've taken decades to bring to fruition for a reason, because they are now the most sensitive instruments we have for basically measuring space that have ever existed. 
So, you know, these are like the ultimate in rulers, basically. They, they tell you how big a space is and whether it's changing in its length at all. Yeah, this is like better than a helix, isn't it? Oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, helix, a dream of this. One day, helix, one day. <laughs> Keep on fighting the good fight, guys. <laughs> um, so these arms, the, the two arms of the, the LIGO machines are four kilometers long. Yeah. Um, and we're looking for a variation that amounts to a thousandth of the width of a proton. Yes. And a proton is an absolute pecker. <laughs> yeah, I mean, yeah, we're talking about a proton is sort of, the nucleus is 10 to the minus 15 meters across, isn't it? So, mm-hmm. so yeah, we are talking a lot of zeros after that decimal point. Yeah. Really. And, and it's just ridiculous how small it is. You think of an atom and then the nucleus has been compared to the fly in the cathedral. So if the atom is the size of a cathedral, mm-hmm. the nucleus is the size of a fly yeah. within that cathedral. And then we're talking about taking one of the nucleons. So, so maybe, you know, let's say a quarter of that size, yeah. quarter of the fly, and then divide that by a thousand again. And that's the kind of really, thing. really small. Yeah. Yeah. So it's a thousandth of a fly leg in a cathedral. Yeah. Which is the most terrible analogy that anybody's ever come up with. Why isn't that in your article? (laughs) It's very compelling. (laughs) It is truly the start of a new era in astrophysics. Through three decades' development here on Earth of exquisitely sensitive instrumentation, we are able to glimpse cosmic processes that were previously undetectable. LIGO connected the heavens and the Earth. When did they turn the machines on? Pretty recently. Yeah, sort of, I think it was September 2015. Yeah. And they got their first detection within a couple of weeks. Handy. So, uh, yeah, so, which they weren't expecting at all and, and took everybody by surprise. And then they thought, oh, maybe the team has been like putting false injections in to test us. You know, they've been faking the signal to see, mm-hmm. you know, how good we are at detecting them. And it turned out that nobody had been messing about with it. Nobody had been putting false signals in. And their analysis sort of said, you know, this, this is a gravitational wave. Something was there in both detectors at pretty much the same time. Uh, within the time window that it takes for a gravitational mm-hmm. wave to travel from one to the other detector. So it looked pretty kosher. And they announced it a couple of months later? Yeah, so they announced it in February, I think it was. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so they, they took a long time to do all the analysis, check that everything was right, and then eventually made this announcement, uh, which was, you know, pretty stunning. Yeah, I mean, people were people were loving it. It was headline news. Everywhere. I was loving yeah, it. Yeah, I barely yeah. even understood it. I was loving it. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's sort of a weird thing because they, you know, it comes out effectively like a little chirp, you know, a little noise, yeah. you know, that you get from the detector, mm. and so it's sort of this um, completely unimpressive kind of noise of detection because it's so small. But it, the fact that it comes, you know, from light years away, billions of light years away, and mm. it was kind of seen as the first real proof that black holes actually existed. The fact that we'd seen this kind of merger of two black holes. So it was a huge thing. What's the sort of publication process? They make this announcement. Yeah. They then publish a paper. Yeah, yeah. So they they worked with a, a journal. They selected a journal called Physical Review Letters, which is mm-hmm. you know, one of the absolute primary physics journals. Yeah. And uh, they, in a quite a secretive process, initially let the senior people or senior editors know that they'd got this detection and they would want to publish it. And then they worked with them to kind of keep it all under wraps while they, they sort of went through all the checks and balances. And then uh, it sort of uh, was submitted officially two weeks before it was published. So there's not a lot of time for peer review, but I think there was probably some sort of review going on. But quite a difficult thing to two check. Two weeks is pretty quick, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, it's, it's very quick. It came out in physical review letters 
And, you know, that was on the same day that they had the press conference Mm -hmm. and they kind of announced it and made this huge sort of fuss over it. The team end up getting the Nobel Prize of Physics. Yeah. Um, Now, what about these Danish guys? (laughs) What do they say? So, I mean, it's a really interesting thing. So, so sort of 18 months ago, there was a little story somewhere saying, oh, this, this group of Danish researchers at a place called the Niels Bohr Institute in Copenhagen and actually, reputable. they're not. Yeah, uh, totally reputable. And mm-hmm. they're not actually Danish. They're all sort of you know from various nationalities. Sure. But, but um, so they're they're based there in Copenhagen. And uh, they said, well, you know, we've sort of done our analysis on the data that we've got from from LIGO that's been sort of released, and mm-hmm. we see a problem with this. And the problem they saw specifically was they said that when they, we look at the noise, you know, take away the signal and look at the noise background, there seems to be a link, a correlation between the two different detectors. And the noise should be entirely separate. Independent. Independent. Because they're so far apart. Yeah, the, the there's, no, there's no connection because noise is a random thing. Mm-hmm. And they said, but somehow there's there's a correlation between these two noise signals and that shouldn't be the case. So this observation was published mm-hmm. in a peer-reviewed paper and went out for proper peer review and everything. Yeah. Uh, and it, but it had been posted online for months before that. LIGO people gave no response, basically. And just, I think, hoped it would go away and nobody would notice. And a couple of people wrote some stories about it, but, but it, nobody really sort of made anything of it. It just sort of fell into silence, effectively. Enter so, Brooksy. Yeah, yeah. So um, I was, I was uh, doing a story for New Scientist, uh, and I, I was looking into some stuff about uh, some superconductor claims. So, so somebody in India had claimed that they had made a room temperature superconductor. Mm-hmm. And uh, somebody else had said, mm, I doubt that very much. Can we have your data, please? And, and they wouldn't release the data. They wouldn't respond to any requests. And somebody had said, well, I've done an analysis of what you've posted and you've got correlations in the noise sort of in, between two experiments that should be completely uncorrelated. Mm-hmm. So I said, oh, the interesting thing here is how you use noise to kind of you know, do a bit of fraud detection. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and then I, you know, I remember this LIGO thing. And I thought, oh, I'll just check w- what's happened with that. Mm-hmm. So I got in touch with uh, one of the people in, in Copenhagen and said, oh, has this all gone away now? Is it, you know, is it all resolved? And they said, no, no. I mean, so the guy I spoke to, a guy called Andrew Jackson, um, and he, he said, this is kind of the most shocking period of my life, like the last 18 months. I can't believe how, you know, I'm getting nothing back from the LIGO people, and we're finding more and more dodgy things about their research. And so I thought, oh, that's interesting. Let's, let's poke that a little bit more. So how did you poke? So I poked really by looking at their papers, um, by talking to them about the, what, they, what they'd done, and then going to the LIGO people and saying, you know, what are you doing about this? Is this a credible thing? You know, who can I talk to about this? Uh, LIGO put me on to somebody who does the data analysis. Uh, this is a guy called Neil Cornish. who said, no, they've just got their analysis wrong. They're just making really basic mistakes in their signal analysis. And we just kind of can't quite be bothered to finish the paper to refute their analysis. Can't be bothered to finish the paper. Kind of, yeah. It was just like, this is really boring stuff and we've got really exciting things to do. But so hold on. This analysis that the Danish group have published is presumably peer-reviewed. People can look at it. You must be able yeah. to get a definitive answer on whether they have made a basic error. Well, so this is the thing. So I went to the editor of the journal where they'd published and mm-hmm. I said, look, you know, there's questions about this. You know, what kind of peer-review process did they go through? You know, and he wouldn't tell me who peer-reviewed it and he wouldn't release any referee reports because these that's are, pretty standard they're isn't confidential it? yeah yeah, yeah. Uh, but he said look i gave it to the highest qualified people i could find and this is a reputable journal by the way yeah. you know this is like you know a high class journal it's not the beano is it it's not the beano and uh, and uh, he said look i gave it to the best people i could find they couldn't find a problem with it that's why we published it 
You know, it's very straightforward. This is how science works, after all. You know, somebody makes a claim, other people check it. If you think the claim isn't right, then then you say so, and, and that's how science moves forward. Have LIGO released all of their data? Um, no, no. So Why not? I, I think that's complicated. I'm not entirely sure why. We have sort of some of the data that they've got and some of the processed data that they've got, mm-hmm. but we haven't got the raw data. Mm. So they've released some sort of cleaned up stuff, but the Danish group's sort of view is, well, they haven't told us how they cleaned it up, therefore we don't know what they've actually done to it. And the big problem that then I came across was that I, I was talking to the LIGO researchers about their publication in Physical Review Letters. Mm-hmm. And they kind of said, yeah, well, we didn't really do the full data analysis for that paper, or, the, or the, what we've published in that paper isn't exactly right. And if you look at figure one of that paper, well, we kind of did that bit by eye. By <laughs> eye? Like, what? And so uh, they've just sketched the like sketched the graph by hand. So I I tried to find out what that actually meant, right? Because I thought, did, you know, it, that, did that, they say by eye? By eye is the quote. Yeah, yeah. That's insane. Yeah, that's uh, like being at school. I mean, this is some where shit yeah. results in your physics coursework and just going. Well, I mean, this is I where was it, hoping for a straight line through the origin. <laughs> that will do. <laughs> this is where it gets really kind of murky because obviously, you know, you don't publish in that kind of journal with you know doing you know your illustrations by eye. So I, I said, can you explain to me what it means? So the guy I was talking to, he sent an email to the person who did it, yeah. who didn't reply to him. Mm. to his question of um, what does it mean that we did that it by surprised. eye. Yeah, and so I contacted him about a week later. I said, look, have you heard anything? And he said, no, I'll try him again. And he tried him again, again, nothing. And I said, well, can you give me the person's name so that I can go to them directly? And he said, no, I can't do that. So I'm oh. sort of stuck. <laughs> Which, you know, it's like him protecting the confidentiality. I understand the kind of processes that you go through. That's not what but, he's protecting. I mean, yeah, I mean, you, you see that as more suspicious than I yeah, do. Yeah, I certainly do. But um, somebody else I talked to was a guy called Duncan Brown, who's the guy who's sort of since left the LIGO collaboration. Mm-hmm. And he says that it was a sort of pedagogical illustration <laughs> and maybe they should have put a note on that on the paper mm, to say, oh, maybe. this is not taken from our data, but this is a pedagogical illustration of our point. Effectively, what they're saying is, look, if you subtract this signal of a black hole merger from the noise, then this is what you get. The journal don't want people publishing papers where they're drawing stuff by eye. So, I mean, I went to the editor who was responsible for it at yeah. the journal and said... A, were you aware that this was like done by eye and illustrative or pedagogical? And B, you know, if you were aware of it, is that normal for you to publish things like that? And the only answer I got was he declined to comment. So oh. literally stonewalled, you know, just like... A huge surprise. And it's effectively what my story does is put this out there. Yeah. And I, I wonder, you know, what the sort of fallout is going to be. Oh, I'm very excited about the fallout. <laughs> I want to see some Nobel Prizes retracted. Well, that's never been done, has it? So nobody's ever lost a Nobel Prize. So you've been speaking to some people from the the Danish group, haven't you? Can we chat to one now? Yeah, so their spokesperson is a guy called Andrew Jackson, who's a a physicist who actually works mostly on biophysics, like nerve signal analysis. But still, he's used to doing data analysis. Yeah, exactly. And and presumably in a slightly less uh, partisan way. Well, yeah, and and he works with people who, for instance, analyze the cosmic microwave background signals that Mm. come from satellites. So it's a similar thing there, you know, loads of data to sift through, trying to look for interesting pattern signals, and also trying not to be fooled by things that aren't really there. Hello? Hello? 
Hi, Andrew. Yes, I can hear you fine. It's Michael here. Uh, my co-host Rick is also on the line here. Hello, Andrew. Hi, Rick. So, Andrew, thanks very much for agreeing to talk to us. When did you first start doing some analysis of these LIGO results? Well, we got kind of interested with the very first press conference. There were a number of things that were a little surprising to us that kind of piqued our interest. And by we, I mean Pavel Miselsky, who was an expert in CMB physics, cosmic microwave background physics, and a postdoc we had, Hal Yu. And the, the three of us were kind of surprised by several things. The first was that the masses of the black holes that LIGO was reporting seemed much higher than anything we knew of any theoretical explanations for. So this was very surprising. Another thing that was surprising uh, was that they'd made this major discovery within a week or so after reopening the facility after an upgrade. And and this, this seemed rather surprising to us as they were still in the process of calibrating and understanding their new detectors. And finally, we were really kind of disturbed by the fact that they were doing template analysis of the data itself, which is to say, in order to detect the event, they were using waveforms that were expected, in this case, for the merger of two black holes. And that tends to be a circular argument in the sense that If you're only looking at the templates of two black holes, it's pretty hard to conclude you've seen something else. And then they made the point during this press conference that their data was online. And uh, since the data is rather simple, it's just a couple of simple one-dimensional time streams of data, we decided we'd uh, take it down from the net and and analyze it ourselves to see see what we could see. So it's interesting. You're saying that you were immediately suspicious because... The size of the black holes was bigger than you would expect. They were maybe overconfident. It was happening a bit earlier than you would have expected, given they'd only turned the machine on uh, so recently. And they're looking for these specific template results. That also arouses your suspicion. I mean, the thing you can conclude when you use a template analysis, for example, in this case, is that our results are consistent with black hole merger. But in order to make the stronger statement that it really and truly is a black hole merger, you have to rule out anything else it could be. And the characteristic signal here is actually very generic. What do they find? They find something where the frequency increases, the amplitude increases, and then everything dies down exponentially. And that describes just about every conceivable catastrophic event you could imagine. You see increasing amplitude, increasing frequency, and then it settles into something new. So they really were obliged to rule out all terrestrial effects, including seismic effects and the fact that there was an enormous lightning strike in Burkina Faso at exactly the same time, plus these strange glitches that nobody understands that are in their data. And they had to do all of that absolutely convincingly before they could conclude they really had gravitational wave effects. So we wanted to see a little more modesty in, in what they were presenting. And so do you think that they failed to rule out all of those other possibilities? Yes. And so why would that be? Why would they not be rigorous? These are enormously sensitive measurements they're, they're, they're making. They have a sensitivity which corresponds roughly to one thousandth the size of a proton roughly one million, million, millionth of a meter. It's, it's incredibly sensitive. And this means 
since they're making measurements of very small effects, they need a detector of high sensitivity. And this inevitably means noise of all kinds of sources. It's virtually impossible to rule them all out. What they should have done, and what we have since done, is to do a blind estimate of the signal. And when you've done the blind estimate of the signal without making any assumption about what it is, then you can compare it with as many different possible sources as you think. It's just a more convincing way to do it. It's just a dangerous thing to start off with an a priori bias as to what you think you're seeing. So, Andrew, um, one of the questions that springs to my mind straight away is that they've made claims of five other gravitational wave detections. You know, we're not basing the Nobel Prize on just one detection, for instance. And there was one where we saw the electromagnetic radiation from a neutron star merger that coincided with a gravitational wave signal. Does that not seem conclusive to you that they are seeing something? Well, it, it would uh, if, if we could see those events. But in fact, we can't see any of those events when we do a blind analysis of the data. So coming from Denmark, I'm tempted to say it's the case of the emperor's new gravitational waves. <laughs> I like that, Andrew. One of the things I wanted to ask you was the LIGO collaboration says that they don't agree with your analysis methods and that their signals are there if you do them their way. So how does one choose between these different methods? I mean, it, it seems to be a case of, you know, they're saying we're right and you're saying you're right. How do we move forward from that? I think there's a, there's a very simple way to do it. Uh, let, let me tell you a number which I just checked about 20 minutes ago, which is as of today, the first paper, which is the only case where we can actually see an event, has 4,563 citations. We're essentially the only people who've done an independent analysis. Big science presents us with real difficulties because I don't happen to have an extra $2 billion or pounds or euros, it doesn't matter which, to repeat the experiment. So the only thing we can do is take a look at the data they choose to release. And we've done that, but very few other people have. So if people want to make up their own minds, which is, of course, what they should do, they should download the data and do their own analysis. And if we're wrong, we're wrong. But I don't think we are. But I would welcome other people to do this. In fact, what I hope is, is that sooner or later we will get other people to do independent analysis. Is there enough data to work with? Ah, that's an interesting question. In the beginning, there was. The first event was fairly well documented, not necessarily by their publications, which had some serious problems with them, but on their website, their so-called LIGO Open Science Center. Unfortunately, as time has gone on, they put on less and less and less data, so that now, uh, for example, with the so-called neutron star merger, you can't even see the waveform because they don't tell you that. They don't tell you the parameters of the neutron star. They don't give you enough information, really, to do things. So it's getting more difficult. But still, for the very first event, there's data out there that's perfectly sufficient. So do you anticipate that more people will do their own analysis? <laughs> I hope so, but I have no, no way of knowing. It, it, should, it should be clear, science is not about belief. Science is about understanding. The only way you can really understand things is, on some level, to do them yourself. So people really ought to check. Sooner or later, they will. So, Andrew, what have the LIGO collaboration said to you, and, and how have they responded uh, to your criticisms? Their first response was... Uh, 
a sequence of rather remarkable ad hominem attacks. I mean, they just went after us and saying we didn't know this and we didn't know that. And then we started to have at least a minor dialogue with them, which involved an, an interesting visit in the summer of 2017 from a seven-member LIGO team who came to show us the error of our ways and spent a month here in Copenhagen. It was very, very interesting because when we disagreed about the results of calculations, we could sit down with them and do line-by-line checks of the programs that they were using. And in fact, we found seven or eight errors. Unfortunately, they were all in LIGO's programs. And when we corrected the errors, we ended up agreeing. But they didn't agree, did they, that there was no signal there? Oh, they, they certainly didn't agree that. We're not saying there's no signal there. There is clearly a signal. The question is, what is the signal? Why do you think they just won't release all the data they have, the raw data? I simply don't know. I mean, of course, there's a lot of things they have to release if you want to do the, the analysis carefully, because one of the things you absolutely must know is how the noise behaves in this. And so they have to release quite a bit of data, but still, it's not like uh, CERN data. It's not like the LHC when they when you talk about pentabytes of data. You can put essentially everything you need on one DVD. So they could release it. And I think this notion of releasing data from, from big science projects is something that others have learned to deal with. For example, when astronomers use uh, the Hubble telescope, they don't have an unconditional right to the data. They have a limited time right to the data. And by common agreement, after I think it's a year, that data is released and available to everybody. And there's no reason why LIGO shouldn't do the same thing. Andrew, what's the next step for you? Or is it for you? I mean, are you just sort of getting on with your normal day-to-day work now? Part of the next step is to try to convince other people to take a look at this. I, 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 I mean, this, for me, is a very serious issue for all kinds of reasons. Do we really know what we're doing when we do, in general terms, big science? There was a, an American center many, many years ago who was uh, on some defense department committee or something. He said, a billion here, a billion there, sooner or later, it adds up to real money. <laughs> And the couple of billion that's been used on LIGO is real money. And it could have done many other things if one had decided to do so. I think that we have to worry a bit about what we expect to get out of big science investments and how we make sure that there's sufficient openness. And I think that's a matter of real, real principle. Right. Also, it's disturbing for me. You know, there are no answers in the back of the book of fundamental science. And we all... Theorists, experimentalists, everybody just makes mistakes all the time. We fumble our way to a new discovery. And it's surprising that so many big science projects just get it right, get it right, get it right. They don't fail. And so the question is, what's going on? Is it because they're not really doing fundamental science? Or is it because, as in the finance crisis, big science is in fact too big to fail? I'm worried about it. And I'm worried about it because we want, as scientists, the community at large, the public at large, to to trust us when we say we've done our jobs the right way and we've done things responsibly, you should believe us. The only way we do that is hold ourselves to enormously high standards. And I don't think that's happened. You know, we've got a lot of problems confronting us in a broader sense. I mean, we would like people to believe in climate change when we tell them that climate change is coming. And if we don't uphold really high standards of proof, 
There's no reason why people should believe us. So we have to do that. Let me ask you quite a difficult question, Andrew. Given what you've seen of the results and the analysis that LIGO have published, would you be giving that team a Nobel Prize for physics? No, not now. I mean, let's see. Let's check it. Let's subject this to the test. Let other people look at it. And if it turns out that they're right and we're wrong, we'll publish an erratum, guaranteed. Just listening to um, Andrew talk there about how LIGO reacted, it feels like LIGO were just behaving like bullies, like, <laughs> like, like, like the big kids, just going, what, th- these idiots? These idiots don't know anything. Yeah, there is an element of that, for sure. I certainly encountered that sense of, oh, I wish they'd just go away. You know, it's just like, what do they know about this kind of thing? They're just doing it wrong. The thing is, if you are like a small group working on on something with you know i mean obviously you've you've got your funding and so on then it's part and parcel of being a scientist and publishing work that occasionally you will have to backtrack and say oh do you know what no we did we did get that wrong yeah and that's just accepted yeah. it's not like not something to be ashamed of yeah not necessarily gonna like damage your career particularly yeah as long as you behave in the way that is expected whereas that is precisely what ligo are not doing yes yeah, I, I think that's true. I think that's fair. I mean, Richard Feynman famously said that, you know, the whole point of science is not to fool yourself and you're the easiest person to fool. And the whole point is that you know, other people are meant to prove you wrong and you're meant to prove yourself wrong until you get to the point where I can't find any other explanation for this other than it is the thing yeah. that, that we said. And that's, you know, that's probably not what's going on here exactly. The only thing we can say is it should be questioned. Yeah, yeah, we don't know how this is going to turn out in the end. We're going to have to wait and see. That's the sad thing about science is it doesn't happen quickly enough for like news cycles or whatever. Mm. But I think there is credible reason to sort of go back and ask the question, was this really the discovery that was claimed initially? And I think there's a good reason to say to the LIGO collaboration that they need to actually, you know, engage with this. And I think they haven't engaged with it properly. And then, you know, hopefully the due process will go on down the line and either, you know, we'll get the Nobel Prize given back or at least the paper retracted or some errors corrected in the paper, mm-hmm. uh, the initial discovery paper, or we'll find that actually, you know, the Danish guys have made a mistake and it's not correct. And even though it got through peer review, that doesn't mean it's correct. So, you know, it's still... And our friend Andrew will apologise. Well, he's got nothing to apologise for. I mean, he's doing what a scientist should do and yeah. saying, okay, is that really real? If I could do it, I would, but I definitely don't know how to do this data analysis. No, me neither. But if anyone is listening who does have the ability, mathematicians, statisticians, data analysts, get involved. Have yeah. a look. Yeah. Why not? I mean, and that's what Andrew's really calling for, is for more people to yeah. check this data. You know, he said the whole thing could be on a DVD, all of that raw data. So that's your Christmas DVD sorted, I think. Oh, yeah. Um, <laughs> Sit down, mum. You're going to love this one. <laughs> So if you have any statisticians in your life, that's the DVD you buy them for Christmas. Um, what's your article called? It's called Wave Goodbye. Oh. <laughs> if you were holding your mic, you should definitely drop it. <laughs> and that's in New Scientist Now, isn't it? Yes. Science Ish is a Radio Wolfgang production presented by me, Rick Edwards, and Dr. Michael Brooks. 
The producers were Cormac McAuliffe and Eli Block. Sound design by Eli Block. Special thanks to Andrew Jackson. If you like the show, please subscribe and rate wherever you listen to your podcasts. Thanks very much. It does help. You can also find us on Twitter at science underscore ish. Oh, yeah, I'll do that now, yeah. Science-ish is a Radio Wolfgang production presented by me, Rick Edwards, and old deep throat himself, Dr. Michael Brooks. The produ- <laughs> uh, I'll do a clean one of those. <laughs> Your computer makes thousands of connections every day just like the one it's making now to deliver you your audio content. Why not unlock some little connections of your own? Pick up a box of Cadbury Heroes today, stay at home and share them with your family or friends. Sometimes it's the little things that bring us together. 